Welcome to the Zen of Everything, a Zen take on life, love, laughter, and everything else. With Jundo Cohen, a real Zen master. That's me. And Kirk McElhern, that's me, a guy who knows a bit about Zen. Good evening, Jundo. How are you today? I'm trying to be good. Ah, that's good of you. I noticed that you have shaved your head again this weekend. Is that one of the precepts that you need to shave your head every, I don't know, week, month, whatever? Well, it's actually not like that. And people think that you have to be bald uh, to be a, a Buddhist priest. But the Vinaya, that's the official rule book of American baseball, I mean of, the, uh, of being <laughs> a priest, says that you can have uh, two, I believe, two finger widths of hair. So you may notice that actually the Tibetans and the Chinese sometimes have a, a yes, little bit of a correct. stubble there. Yeah. It's the uh, Japanese who uh, sometimes shave uh, all the way down just to, to be uh, a little bit more pure than everybody else. But uh, it's okay to have a little stubble. You, you talked about the rule book. Is there a book rule for Zen? Well, originally... There was a, a rule book called the Vinaya in India and uh, still applies in Southeast Asia and China for the rules of being a Buddhist priest, which had everything from the kind of chair you were allowed in to the many rules for being present in the same room with someone of the opposite sex to the kinds of food you were allowed to eat, and many, many other things. There are, I'm going to get this wrong, 270. Three rules, except there's a few extra rules for women, because we all know that women get in more trouble than men, so they need a few extra rules, or they used to think that in the old days. Well, it's more to protect the men from getting in trouble with the women, so they put the onus on the women, didn't they? Well, it yeah, it's uh, whatever it was. Let's just call it out-and-out uh, -out discriminatory. But uh, <laughs> they they had all these rules, and when the precepts came to Japan. They got the 273, the precepts down to a nice 16. Ooh, that's nice. Okay, so today we're going to talk about the precepts. And first, there's a reason for talking about the precepts, because Tree Leaf is starting its annual Jukai, what do you call it, procedure, um, in a few weeks, what, in September? Well, we have an undertaking the precepts ceremony for our members in January, and we spend a few months before that uh, reflecting on each of the precepts and sewing a raksu. A raksu is a kind of a, a Buddhist robe, miniaturized robe that you may have seen uh, many uh, Zen folks wear. And uh, it looks after like a those, well, yeah, it's more. It's it's the whole universe in miniature. Well, everything's the whole universe. What I'm saying, it, you can recognize it because it looks like a bib, the kind that you used to get in lobster restaurants. Okay, it looks like a, a bib, yes, yeah. But we, we, we sew it in a lovely practice of doing something carefully and 
with no thought of finishing, just step by step, stitch by stitch, and we reflect on each of the precepts. And then in January, we have a ceremony. But as I often tell everyone, the, um, the ceremony is just a celebration. Uh, it's like uh, like a birthday party is a celebration for the fact that you have turned a certain age. The, the, the party doesn't turn you anything. As to me, the, the Jukai celebrates trying to live by the precepts, trying to do good, to live in a healthful way, to study the Buddhist teachings, to put them into practice. That's what the ceremony represents. Westerners are familiar with the Ten Commandments. Um, curiously, there are ten grave precepts that don't actually correspond to the Ten Commandments. What's amazing is there's quite a bit of overlap. You know, don't uh, kill, don't s- steal. Uh, I guess don't covet your neighbor's wife. Is don't misuse sexuality. We've spoken about that the last few weeks. Not killing and yeah. and sex. We we spoke about that. But, uh, you know, being honest and uh, being good, being um, not very covetous, it's all in, in the precepts. The, the difference is, in the Buddhist precepts, I don't think lightning's going to come down and hit you in the head if you break one. Yeah, but wouldn't you build up bad karma that would stay with you for endless kalpas? That's actually true. And in the past, we did have the vision <laughs> that if you broke the precepts, you were going to go to the most fire and brimstone hell that you could a guy in a preacher in Mississippi would have been shocked by the Buddhist image of hell and what the devils down there would do to you. If you broke the precepts, that's true. Um, And the many different layers of hell and the various VIP rooms for people who broke certain precepts. Oh yeah. Yeah. They, they would have spears and uh, hot coals and uh, molten lava. And they actually had a cold hell. If you didn't like the hot hell, they'd freeze you. But I don't believe in any of that. I'm sorry. And uh, I, I say that I've seen people make hells for themselves in this life. I don't uh, need to believe in one that's going to come after this world. I know if you break the precepts in this life, if you're too angry, if you're too divisive in your thinking, if you're filled with uh, resentments, I've seen people make hells for themselves, for the people around them, for their town for their country, sometimes for the whole world, if they do enough damage. In the show notes, I'll link to a page on the Tricycle website, which lists the various precepts. And I note that there are two groups of precepts. One is the three pure precepts, and the other is the 10 grave precepts. Why can't we just stick with the three? Because don't they cover everything in the other 10? Well, there's actually 16. First off, we, we... It's considered the precepts. We, we, we take refuge in the Buddha. That's the, the fellow who uh, gave us these teachings. The Dharma, those are the teachings itself, as, as well as reality. It's just uh, having trust in reality. And uh, the Sangha, the community of Buddhists. So those are the first three. And then there's actually some uh, differences on on how to interpret the next three, but they basically come out to uh, try to do good, try not to do bad, and be helpful to others, which are just very nice rules. And on the tricycle list, it includes doing good and doing good for others, whereas that sort of sounds like it's the same. Is the first one doing good for oneself and the second doing one for others? Well, remember that Buddhists think that the self 
and others are ultimately all one. So we can get rid of precept three then. So we can just say doing good and that's all we need. Well, you know, you just want to, I guess, hammer it home a couple of times just to make sure. And people ask, what does it mean to do good? You know, is there right and wrong? And I usually tell people this. Some things are definitely black and white, right and wrong. For example, I, I tell people doing violence to children. I can't think of a situation where that is ever right. So I'm going to say that's pretty clear. Other cases, people come to me and say, well, should I kill the mice in my house? Or can I lie to my wife about the, she's bought this new dress and I wanted to, she asked if I like it and I really don't, but I, I want to kind of tell a fib. Is it okay to, to break the precept on being honest? And I say, well, in those cases, it's, it's really situational ethics. It's really case by case. But the basic principle comes down to this. Try not to do harm. Try to do something helpful and healthy toward oneself and others. That's the definition of good. And doing bad is the opposite, something harmful. So the 10 grave precepts go into some details that I don't think you find in the 10 commandments. I haven't memorized the 10 commandments. Uh, for example, number five, not diluting the mind. Well, again, you know, I, when we give uh, Jukai in our Sangha, by the way, I'm going to invite everybody later. If anyone has not received Jukai, has any interest in undertaking the precepts. We're starting in a few weeks. You're more than welcome to come to reflect on the precepts, to sow a rock suit, to study with us. And, and if you feel at home in the community and in a couple of months, uh, when it gets close to January, if, if you feel that it's right, you're more than welcome to join in the, the ceremony. But what was the one you just read? Not diluting the mind. Okay. Is that about intoxication? I think so. Oh, I guess that is, yeah. So it's one thing to point out is that the wording is very different from one list to another, whether it's um, different websites, different authors, the way you write, that's the, the intoxication. First off, they're all translations from Chinese via Japanese, and then the sometimes the even the Japanese is, is very obscure. The actual precept says not selling liquor, which is very specific. Really? Yes, but this has been taken to mean not literally just the not being in the bar business. It means not uh, purveying intoxicants. And that doesn't mean just uh, drugs and alcohol. It means anything that's misleading or um, intoxicating to the mind in many ways. For example, if I sell uh, junky TV shows or violence uh, on, on TV, that's a kind of intoxication. If I um, tell someone that they can, if you can drink a beer once in a while, is that intoxication? Well, some uh, Buddhists will say no alcohol at all, but most Japanese Buddhists will say, well, in moderation, it's not intoxication. Uh, you don't uh, drink when you're practicing Zazen meditation or in the monastery. But, you know, I've been with, I got to tell you some of the parties I've been to with the monks. I, I've been to parties with the karaoke and the the monk gets up there and does his Frank Sinatra and uh, the sake is flowing. And it's okay. It was, uh, you know, the end of the year, New Year's, and why not? Now, if you're an alcoholic, even one drop is poison. But the Japanese attitude has always been that, you know, in moderation, sake is not a bad thing. It's uh, intoxication. Is, uh, intoxication is something much more serious. 
So again, when it comes to sex, when it comes to human emotions, the Japanese have an earthier attitude towards the precepts than a lot on the the, the stricter side. So kind of uh, a little bit, we look the other way like that. That's not what everyone says. And, and I found another website where they're saying essentially um, no intoxicants can be taken in. And I, I think a lot of people, they look at precepts and commandments as very rigid and you're of the, would you call it the reformed school? Uh, that that you're a lot more flexible. I'm going to say traditionally in Japan, there were times to take the precepts strictly. If you're in the monastery, if you're in uh, training, not a drop of alcohol, vegetarian diet. When you're outside, the Japanese have a way of saying, okay, you're off, it's off hours now. You know, we're kind of nine to five. So after five o'clock, in moderation, it's all right to, you know, uh, drink a little, eat some fish or meat. Uh, it's part of life. The Japanese were never as strict about it. Some Japanese were, but most Japanese priests were never as strict about it as many in the rest of Asia. And yet some of the heroes of Zen Buddhism... Uh, seem to have broken lots of precepts. I'll bring up Ikkyu again, who I find is an extremely colorful figure. I know you don't feel the same way as I do about him. Um, he seemed to break a lot of precepts pretty much every day. Well, yeah, we, we spoke about this before, but my uh, opinion of Ikkyu changed uh, in recent years. Some people used to celebrate the fact that he'd go down to the bordello and get himself plastered. And, you know, it, it seemed like he, he had a good heart. He really fell in love with uh, a a woman in his later years, and 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 it's all uh, it's all lovely. But uh, my opinion of EQ has changed over the years. I, I used to celebrate uh, with many people the fact that he'd go into the bordello or the bar and drink to excess. And he had a romantic heart. He fell in love with a, a beautiful, uh, a visually impaired woman in his later years when he was an old man, and wrote some really really dirty poetry about it. And uh, it, some people took it as I mean I, I'm t telling you. Dirty lyrics, this guy. Uh, and it, it, it's a lot of fun, and he was a good guy. But it wasn't a teaching. I kind of think he was a fellow who loved Zen and loved meditation. And in the monastery, he was as serious as serious can be. And the rest of it, he was just a scabby old lech and a bit of an alcoholic. <laughs> we got to just face it. It's not something to celebrate. Um, if he kept it under control, that's one thing. I had a uh, some f folks come to me today and say, can I drink and how much? And I said, I can't tell you. If it's harmful, then it's not good. If it's not causing harm, then it's fine. That's my standard. So number six in the grave precepts is not talking about others' errors or faults. That's a really tough one, isn't it? I'm just thinking of the Tree Leaf Forum um, everyone just can't be all nice and friendly all the time. Sometimes people have to be honest. If you're saying not telling lies and then someone does something wrong, you have to talk about errors or faults, don't you? Well, the precept says don't criticize others and, and raise yourself up, which is a good general principle, but it really means don't talk about others in a non-constructive way. Don't just gossip. Don't start rumors that have no basis. Don't just uh, speak about others uh, because you want to bring them down and, and be mean. Speak, I, I criticize others when it's constructive. 
I can cr criticize other Buddhist teachers when I think they've gone wrong, as long as I mean it in a sincere and uh, way to, to, to make things for the better. So it's not to not criticize at all. What about not being stingy? I don't think that's the actual translation from Japanese or any other language. Um, other translations I've seen are much more expansive on what this means, it, about sharing and giving freely, etc. Right, right. Again, these are all translations. So every uh, English-speaking group has kind of given their own wording to this, and they're all over the place. But the basic principle is, don't be stingy means uh, give of yourself in financially to those in need. That's very basic. It used to mean give to monks, support your local temple. Right, because the monks would go around with their um, begging bowls and they would beg for food. Right. But in modern times, we're taking this out into the world. Support the poor. Support those who are lacking what you have. They don't have a place to live. Give them a place to live. That's that's important. That's a modern interpretation, but I think it's important in this world. And it also means give teaching. Give the Buddhist teaching. I'm doing it right now. I'm trying not to be stingy. You have to sit here for a half hour and listen to me not be stingy <laughs> with these teachings, okay? I'm giving uh, all I've got. and um, I've never known you to be stingy with teachings. Um, no, you're, no. You're I'm the kind stingy. of guy that you can wind up and you'll talk for an hour about anything. I got bottomless pockets of words, too. And uh, also <laughs> be, uh, be generous with friendship. Be generous in giving time and support. It's just uh, common sense. Yeah, A lot of this but, is common sense. Of course it is. But what you were saying earlier about different groups have different interpretations in the way they translate it. Um, I'm a writer and words have real importance. And if one group says something much more harsh than another group, that kind of molds the way that group thinks about the precepts in life in general. Sure, sure. Uh, you know, I'm from a, a, a Jewish background and it, it, a very similar thing happened in Judaism. You know, you have the Orthodox Jews who follow hundreds and hundreds of impossibly detailed rules about how to live. And I, I can tell you a funny story about that. I had a friend who was an Orthodox Jew and he followed like 300 rules. And he married this Japanese woman who became Orthodox and she became more Orthodox was, than he was. So she would drive him crazy because she followed like 380 rules and he thought those eight last 80 rules were just over the top. Drove him crazy. She would say like, uh, okay, I had a half hour. I drank a glass of milk. Now I'm going to have a, a piece of fish. She'd go, no, it's got to be 45 minutes. It would just drive him nuts. <laughs> but uh, it, it's the same. It's, there's a human, a human tendency to want to follow rules for some people, to want to have everything laid out. And other people are more situational and open to uh, case by case. And I, I'm one of those people. But there's also a human tendency for some groups to want to create rules to force other people to follow them. And I think yes. that's where you've got a fine line between um, enforcing the precepts for their intention of what they mean and getting down into the details and enforcing every single action that people do and controlling them. Uh, I'll give you an example of this. Like I said, violence against kids, I cannot think of a, a, yes. a case yeah. where that is okay. I mean, Maybe a little in the spanking for even these days, we don't do that. But I'm talking about real violence against children is just 
never permissible. So I will come down hard and say, thou shalt not lay a hand on a child, period. Okay. But then another fellow came to me and he said, look, I'm a Buddhist. I own guns in the state. Is that a violation of the precept? And I say, well, why do you own the guns? You're going to use them in violence. And he said, well, if someone came in my house, I may defend myself. Is that wrong? And then I said, oh, are you going to be angry when you do this? Are you going to rob a bank? All these, all these situations. So in the old days, the samurai had swords. And it was the same. Now we have guns. Is it always wrong and a violation of the precept on killing to own a weapon? And I told him, I don't think it is. I'm not, I personally oppose guns myself, but I'm not going to say it's a violation of the precept. So uh, people have to judge in their own hearts many of these things. Are the different schools of Zen Buddhism more or less rigid about this? Does each school have their approach to the precepts? Is your approach to the precepts different than the majority of Soto Zen teachers? I would say my approach is pretty typical of Soto Zen teachers in the West. I would say it's probably pretty typical of Soto Zen teachers even in Japan in modern times outside of the monastery when they're out in the world. And in the past, uh, they were probably more uh, rigid about uh, something. Uh, there may have been uh, no sex at all. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago, and now it's all right to marry and things. So things have changed. But I, I think I'm actually pretty typical on this. And, I, and can I tell you, in the bottom of my heart, I think it's a healthy way. Mm. Don't be too rigid about these things. Just don't do harm. As you said earlier, uh, if you're a monk in a monastery, then you have to have more rules because it's a it's a very close situation with a number of people living together. And it's true that applying the precepts more literally makes sense in that environment. And this is they were written for that. They weren't written for us in the modern world who don't live in a monastery. Well, the monastics are, are practicing self-denial. Right. That's very important. So they want to live extra simply with less property, uh, less uh, personal uh, desire, uh, less uh, opportunity to do what they want. That's part of the practice. But out in the world, it's a different practice. In the world, it's about having some desires, having some possessions, but not overdoing it. If you for example, if I have a, a house and some money, I don't feel like I'm violating a precept, but I want to make sure it's not excessive. I'm not overly attached to it. And I'd like to make sure that I give so that everyone in this world has a house and some money. That's the way I look at it. So the last of the grave precepts is not speaking ill of the three treasures. And doesn't every organized group want you to not speak ill of them? There certainly must be some room for criticism of the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. I'll criticize the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha again, constructively. For example, I've said sometimes here that I don't uh, take every teaching of the Buddha literally. That's kind of a criticism, but I don't mean it in a mean way. I mean it in order to help uh, modernize these teachings and, and keep them valuable. I'll sometimes criticize a Sangha, the, the Buddhist community. For example, if it's uh, engaging in cult-like behavior, I'll say, no, that's not good. That's harmful to people. 
So um, it's all right to criticize if it's done in a positive way. So I honor Buddha, the Buddhist teachings, and the Buddhist community, but I also sometimes need to wag a finger if it's deserved. Well, even Dogen criticized the way um, Buddhism was practiced back in his day. Um, sure. But the, one, of the, one of the risks of this kind of precept is that people who are being criticized will say, you have no right to criticize me because of the precept. Well, that's right. You know, there's also the kind of a rule of the precepts is you're really not to criticize others for breaking the precept. Yeah, for example, if I see you drinking too much, I might say something in, in, for your health, like maybe you should take better care of yourself. But I cannot say, oh, I am a better Buddhist and you are a bad Buddhist because you are breaking the precept. I shouldn't do that. I shouldn't. Yes, that's number seven, not elevating oneself and blaming others. That's right. Don't be yeah. uh, holier than thou. Okay. Um, I've been drinking a cup of tea while we've been doing this. Is this considered an intoxicant? If you did too much of it and if you were too attached to it, it sure would be. If I drank too much, I'd be running to the bathroom all day. Um, but attachment, I drink <laughs> tea every day when I get up in the morning after breakfast and I drink tea throughout the day. Is that considered an attachment? Sometimes I feel more like a rabbi than I do a priest when I get these questions. <laughs> well, let me think about it, my son. In the Torah, it says. No. Uh, here, what I say about tea. Tea is uh, considered not an intoxicant like alcohol, though it has mildly uh, psychoactive effects as a stimulant. But it's not usually considered a bad thing. So monks drink tea out the wazoo. Uh, tea and, and Zen have long been associated. Well, historically, tea was used to keep the monks from falling asleep during Zazen. Absolutely. Absolutely. But if you were overly attached to it, if your hands started shaking, if I took away your teacup, or if you were drinking 50 cups a day until you had heart palpitation, then I would say, yes, you're being right. harmful. Harm is the standard. Be healthy, not harmful. If you had a precept to add to the list... Would there be any precept you would want to include? Something that you think is missing in the list of precepts? Always be nice to Jindo would be a good... No, uh, uh, yes. No, that's, that's precept 11. That's okay. an, I would uh, truly like to emphasize that all in this world should have. And it's a precept. It's part of the precept of generosity, but I would even make it clearer. All people in the world should have their basic needs met. It actually is not a precept because it was so well understood in the monastery that all the monastics, all the priests took care of each other. But we should spread this out in the world. So if I had a choice, that's what I would add. That's a good choice. These precepts, uh, these are thousands of years old. No one has ever thought of changing them. I mean, there's not. it's not like there's a conclave of all the Buddhist popes that get together to issue a, a papal bull or something. So these simply can't be changed, can they? Well, I, I, I suppose that uh, if uh, life really changed, uh, you could. I, you know, I've written a, a manuscript that you've seen called Zen of the Future, and I speak about robots. And I've said mm -hmm. that in the future, we may want to get some of these precepts in the robots, especially don't kill human beings. We want to get that in there. Yes, Isaac Asimov wrote precepts for that. Yes, yeah. So uh, we could program them to follow the precepts. It may be important.
But if there were certain situations and, and certain changes in the future, yes, I could see a, a few uh, extra rules. I, I told you the Buddha had those 237, I'm putting a question mark, rules, because <laughs> every time he make a rule, he'd come up to a new situation. And a guy yeah. would say, I have a chair with four legs that's six feet high. Can I sit in it? And he'd say, yes, it's okay. Well, how about a chair that's four feet high? And you have to make a special rule. How about three and a half feet? So they'd keep making these rules for cover every situation. I just say again, don't do harm. Okay, I'm going to go make another cup of tea. Where do we go from here, Jundo? Don't do harm. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe in iTunes or in your favorite podcast app. Please give us a rating. Tell your friends. You can check out past episodes at our website, zen-of-everything.com. And if you want Jundo to answer your questions, send us an email at podcast at zen-of-everything.com. Thanks for listening.